0: Blog talk Radio. Hello, this is Rich Lee from St. Bonaventure University, and welcome to the weekly podcast from um, Tap into Greater Olean, the news site produced by journalism students in our journalist um, workshop talk. Um, today uh, on the line, uh, we have three guests. We have Steve Koka, uh, St. Bonaventure alum who gave an interesting talk here on campus this week um, about the Allegheny-Iroquois and the Brown Indian, and I'm also joined by two students who covered the talk. That's Jake McCollum and Ryan Horan. So, um, Steve, welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much, Rich. I'm I'm very pleased to be on the show uh, this morning. And um, first, to let your listeners know uh, I am a St. Bonaventure graduate. I hold two degrees from St. Bonaventure, a 1973 undergraduate degree in journalism and a 1993 master's degree in education. And I was honored to come down and speak about an article that I've uh, completed and submitted and will be published in the Western New York Heritage. And it's about the dig, the ongoing dig in Allegheny, New York, just about a mile west of the campus. And the dig has uncovered uh, the existence of an 800-year-old cultural group that's called, as you mentioned, the Allegheny Iroquois the talk that i gave yesterday centered around the contrast in three particular areas first of all the, the the idea that uh... that these were the first people to farm the very same land that's where the dig is taking place and is presently being farmed by the Canical farm uh... and that these same people lived a lifestyle that was unlike the hunter-gatherers who visited the valley earlier and it differentiated these native people from the seneca who now live in the valley and uh who Europeans made contact with in colonial times. So that was the talk that I gave.
0: Okay. Yeah, well thank you. It was a fascinating talk and well attended. And you did um you know tie it into um as the title indicates, you know, an issue that's um I guess is resonating, you know, nationally, but you know, we did address it here at St. Bonaventure and that's, you know, the use of um Native Americans as mascots. Um so um I I know you know, Jake, you were very interested in that topic. You know, do you want to you have a question for Steve about the role of um of mascots?
1: Uh yes. Steve, uh why do you personally feel that the Native American warrior mascots should no longer be used by schools? Well, one of the things that I found, Jake, in this research was that this particular group of people, these Allegheny Iroquois, were uh, such a peaceful group of people. They had no Walls. they called palisaded walls, and these particular people had no walls around their village, which was a pretty typical or a common thing for native villages in, in those particular times. Uh, you know, the, there was always a threat of some kind of uh, aggressive neighbor or something, or, or even, as mentioned in the talk yesterday, even animals. Uh, but these particular people, for some reason, had no... Uh, palisaded walls, and their particular lifestyle is what made me contrasted with the Native American images that we see for sports teams. So I'll bring up the fact that uh, years ago, St. Bonaventure had the Brown Indian and the Brown Squaw. The Brown Indian, in particular, was, was a student uh, who would parade and, and, and do antics and somersaults and all kinds of things before a basketball game. First of all, he was inappropriately dressed. He did not look like a Seneca because he wore a a Western-style war bonnet, but he was very violent, and the idea that he, you know, used the tomahawk chop like the the baseball team the Atlanta Braves uses, And, and it was kind of a comical image like that of Chief Wahoo for the Cleveland Indians, and The idea of of Natives being a very aggressive people, a very warlike people, is what many people throughout the country are are, uh, not happy with, Uh, Native Americans and non-Native Americans as well, because it portrays them as only being warriors, and they counter with the idea that it's a noble thing. They counter with the idea that it's a showing bravery. They counter with those kinds of arguments. But many people, myself included, don't see it that way. You don't see that nobility and you don't see that bravery. You only see that warlike image. And, and the proof that I offered was that here's a group of people, and I probably could find more very easily, of Native people who certainly did not fit that particular profile.
0: Okay. Yeah, very good point, Steve. And I, I know Ryan. You and I were talking before the show. I know you have a number of um, things you're curious about about the role of the mascot and Steve's um, Steve's work. You know, you have a, a question for Steve.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Steve, do you believe that the misrepresentation of Native Americans as warlike and violent in mascot portrayals, or even just the use of people as mascots as itself, is deliberately offensive, or do you believe that the Do you think that these team owners actually believe that they're honoring the traditions of these people? Oh, I would have to agree that the team owners, and even at St. Bonaventure, I was there and saw it, and this was not done maliciously. And I don't believe that the Cleveland Indians baseball franchise, the Atlanta Braves baseball franchise, nor the Washington Redskins uh, franchise deliberately tries to portray Native Americans in this very, very... um, you know, very strange role i don't believe so. I do believe that what they they counter with the arguments that they believe in is that they're trying to portray Native American or that image as being something that an athlete or a a spectator or a fan might try to reach for the idea that the athlete should be one who is determined. The athlete should be one who is, can can achieve a goal uh, with uh, with great odds against them. I do believe that that's what those original mascot images try to portray. But the point that I made was that, you know, we get more and more educated all the time, and as we learn about these things, we should begin to question whether or not these images are the ones that, the only ones that we want to portray, and how are we portraying them. That's the question that I think a lot of people raise, you know, uh, the idea of a war-painted, frightening-looking person uh, with a tomahawk in their hand, and that's the image that's up on the wall or on the flag that the person runs in with, and the people scream and yell. I don't know necessarily if a a person could right away determine that that that's supposed to show them bravery or nobility, I think it's supposed to be more frightening, you know. So I I think that, you know, we need to re-educate ourselves. That's the point that I wanted to make. Uh, And to go back to your question, not that they were trying to portray natives as horrible people. On the contrary, I think they were trying to portray Native Americans for for the things that I mentioned, bravery, endurance, uh, nobility, those kinds of things.
0: Okay, great. I wanted to kind of back up for um, a second or two here because one of the fascinating things about your talk, Steve, you was, you know, we were talking about contemporary things, you know, issues that are in the news today, you know, team mascots, uh, but you were able to find, or maybe not personally, but through this dig, you know, you know artifacts that are hundreds and hundreds of years old are telling us something that plays right into a modern-day argument. So I know, you know, Jake and, and you know, Ryan wanted to talk with you a little bit about the dig itself. So, um, Jake, why, why don't I start
1: off with you? Uh, sure, uh, yes, yeah. What sort of artifacts have you found at the dig site? Well, not artifacts that I found, but the artifacts that the Allegheny Valley team and Dr. Stephen Howard found. So what I reported on was what they found. So make that clear to your listeners that I personally didn't, that uh, I didn't find anything of, uh, you know, I, I didn't spend any time except as an observer. But what the team has found over now over uh, three summers of digging. The things that they have found have been the following: they have found uh, the shards of pottery, broken pieces of pottery that were used by the people for their everyday needs. They found evidence of corn, which was an essential food element that the uh, Allegheny Iroquois and other Native people uh, grew um, to you know to sustain themselves. They found the longhouses, the posts of the longhouses. Each longhouse was a long structure in which families lived and lo- a number of families of of the same clan lived and these buildings were quite long in nature depending on the size of the family and so they were built out of posts and then uh, wooden posts and then materials attached to those to make a a structure and so those posts have been found or the remnants i should say of the posts have been found in the fire pits they've also found uh, Um, They found uh, dart tips which were used for hunting and uh, those kinds of things. And they found some uh, rudimentary tools that were used to scrape the hides or cut the meat, those kinds of things. So those are the uh, materials, the artifact material uh, or the cultural material that they call it, that they have so far been able to dig out of the pit. Some 3,000 artifacts have been recovered in the dig site.
0: Okay. And Ryan, you have a question for Steve about the um, the archaeological dig.
1: Right. Um, what information about the Allegheny Iroquois people has the team not yet learned? What pieces of the puzzle is uh, still missing for un- knowing all about their daily life and such? Uh, An excellent question. Uh, One of the things that uh, drives the team is uh, one of the biggest mysteries. Uh, Iroquois people, as we call them, uh, I hope your listeners will understand, the word Iroquois is a word that's commonly used to describe people of a linguistic or a cultural background. It's really Haudenosaunee or people of the longhouse. Haudenosaunee would be in their own language to describe their linguistic and cultural family. But I'll use the word Iroquois because it's a lot easier for us to use. And the word Iroquois indicates a, a common cultural thing, and that uh, common cultural thing was the growing of, a, of three foods, corn, beans, and squash. They're referred to as the three sisters. And the Allegheny Iroquois only grew two. They've only found evidence of the corn, and the squash, and not the beans, and just a hundred miles away at the same time, up in the Genesee River Valley area, in that particular area, your listeners might note Letchworth State Park in that particular area. That was the home of the Seneca, and at the same time, the Seneca or Onondaga people were growing corn, beans, and squash. So a hundred miles away. The same foods were being grown, two of the same three, but not the third, and that's a mystery. Why didn't the Allegheny-Iroquois grow beans? The second particular mystery is what happened to them? You know where, where, you know, where did they go? How come they're not there now? How come we don't have an Allegheny-Iroquois reservation in Salamanca? Why do we have a Seneca reservation in the Salamanca area? So that's the other mystery, and that's what the archaeologists, and, and ethnographers and scientists are trying to piece together how did a group of people, a cultural group of people, disappear from the face of the earth? Or how come we don't know them anymore? How come people don't identify themselves as Allegheny, Iroquois, for example? So uh, that's that. those are the two main mysteries.
0: Okay, thanks, Steve. Uh, we're get, getting getting short on time now, but before we go, I know you mentioned at the start of your talk that this is all... Going to be folded into an article, so I wonder if um, you could, you know, quickly tell folks, you know, where, when, and where they might be able to, you know, you know, read your your article.
1: Thank you, Rich. Yes, the ma- the article will be published in a magazine called the Western New York Heritage, which is a history magazine that's published uh, out of uh, Buffalo, and it's published four times a year. And it's a very, very slick, glossy magazine, a lot of use of photographs and images, and a very well-put-together magazine. And uh, as I said, it's published four times a year, and this article will be in the winter edition, which comes out this month. So people can buy the Western New York Heritage over-the-counter at two locations in the Olian area that I know of for sure, or one, excuse me, one location in the Olean area, and that is at the Topps Supermarket. It can be purchased there. I know that they carry it throughout their chain. The other areas then would be uh, more in the Buffalo area at at, uh, Barnes & Noble also carries the magazine. And you can go online to subscribe to it, and there's a beautiful website, uh, westernnewyorkheritage.org, I do believe, uh, that would be the the way to um, to find it, and uh, you can see the uh, the information about how to subscribe to the magazine and a complete description of what's in the current issue. So that's how they do it.
0: Okay, great. Well, we'll certainly look forward to that. And I also wanted to remind our listeners to, to look forward to um, Jake's story about your talk and Ryan's pictures from your your talk, which should be on our. Website later today or sometime uh, over the weekend. So, um, yeah, our website is Tap Into Greater Olean. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or listen to our podcast. We'll be back again next week with another podcast at 9 a.m. But I wanted to thank um, our guest Steve Coca, our two interviews Jake McCollum and Ryan Haran, um, for joining us today. My name is Rich Lee from Saint Bonaventure University. Thanks again for listening, Uh please join us again next week. Thank you.